I was about 20 years old, and I was just getting started in ministry, doing a fair amount of itinerant speaking and itinerant worship leading. And it was the first time I had this kind of a conversation, and as I look back on it, there are considerable regrets. I was at a, it was at a youth camp just outside of Kelowna, British Columbia. Um, like I said, I've been, been leading worship there. I was one of the speakers there. And it was about the fourth day of the camp. And if you are familiar with camping ministry, and I hope you are, because camps are amazing, it's right about day four that um, people are feeling comfortable enough that they can really talk. And they can really start to process what's going on in their life. It was after the evening chapel service, and uh, most of the kids had left. Um, a few stayed to pray. Um, and I saw him there. I didn't know much about him other than that he, he, was, he was, one of, it was one of the boys. He was, um, he was generally pretty quiet, really kind. Um, and that I noticed throughout the week that um, some of the kids had been bullying him a bit. So a number of us on staff, we kind of stepped in. You try to divert the situation and shift the conversation and knock it off and all that kind of stuff. Well, and, and as, he, as he sat there, he just looked really sad. So I, I, I sat down next to him and I said, what's going on? And he said, I feel... Like I am a cosmic mistake. I said, why is that? His name was Thomas, by the way. Thomas, why is that? He said, um, he, was, he was about 15, something like that. He, was, he said for the last couple of years, um, and all the other, all my friends are, are talking about how they're attracted to girls. I'm attracted to other boys. And I've prayed. And I've asked God to take it away. I know it's wrong. I must have prayed hundreds of times. And uh, and nothing. That's why I feel like I'm a cosmic mistake. Like I'm like I'm an accident. So, like I said, this is the first time I'd have a conversation quite like this, and and and. Uh, I did the best I could in the moment. I just kind of followed my, my instincts, I guess. So I, I put my arm, my arm around his shoulder, and I said, Thomas, I, I, don't, I don't know why, you, why you're feeling what you're feeling. And I don't know why your prayers haven't been answered yet. I just know one thing. I know you're not a cosmic mistake. And I know that God loves you. And he's got a plan for your life. And so I, I prayed for him. And uh, 
Then we kind of parted, you know, just went back on with the evening. And, and honestly, I didn't really, I didn't know quite what else to, to share and, and say. Because, see, at the time, I, I didn't really realize how much at risk he was. Like, I wasn't, it wasn't really on my radar about how, you know, kids that feel same-sex attraction, how um, the, the depression rates are much higher, the bullying rates, especially at the time, because this was 30 years ago, that tells you my age, and, it, and also you remember 30 years ago, right? Some of you, some of you don't. It was before we had cell phones. Can you believe that? Um, And, and, and so I, it wasn't on my radar, you know, that, that like suicide rates are higher, all those things. And, and so I, I, I didn't do much, I didn't do any follow-up, really. And so the next day was the last day of camp and all those kinds of things. And, you know, then, then the, after that, the, the, uh, the, you know, the camp ended and everybody went home. And, I, and a couple weeks later, I moved on to the next camp. And, uh, and, and my next worship leading gig. It was about, uh, I think it was about six months, maybe a year later, when I was talking to some of the leaders from the camp that I'd been a part of, and I, and I, I asked, so, so whatever happened to Thomas? And they said, uh, well, he went home, told his dad and his dad kicked him out of the house said you are no son of mine and no one has ever heard from him since like I said that's one of my greater regrets because I just didn't realize how vulnerable he was I just didn't know now we're in a series called Church and Culture. The, the, this is the uh, Stump the Faster, Put the Pastor on the Hot Seat series that we try to do about once a year. Um, and it's not just because we like to talk about hard topics. It's because in our culture, it is getting harder than ever to talk about hard topics. And so, for us to be a vital and vibrant, gospel-centered, Bible-believing church, we need to find ways to talk about hard topics in respectful, gracious, and biblical ways. And so... Today, our, our topic, as you probably picked out from the opening story, which is all entirely true. Uh, sometimes I make up stories. This is not one. Um, I tell you when I make up stories, right? Okay. okay. But uh, this is one all of us are wrestling with in various ways. Now, throughout the series, we're, what we're looking to do is build on a biblical foundation, and so here, here's what I mean by that, as we look at this topic of human sexuality, and especially today, same-sex attraction. 
We're looking to build on a biblical foundation. Here's what I mean by that. That we are building on some basic presuppositions or with some kind of foundational and shared truths. Here's the first one. It's that God exists. We believe that God exists. God is, in fact, the reality behind reality, the greater reality behind reality, that everything that exists, time, space, matter, everything is because of God. God is the creator of the world. And because God exists, because God is the creator of the world, he also wrote the, he also, well, he writes in the instruction manual. That God, level two, God determines right and wrong. That the same God that designed you, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, beautifully designed in the image of God. That God also, he knows what contributes to human flourishing. He designed you so he knows how it works. So that's the second assumption, that God determines right and wrong. And that's also where a Christian worldview, this biblical worldview we're trying to build, is increasingly at odds with our culture because our culture increasingly says that the center for morality is self. This is my truth, that's your truth. This is my reality, that is your reality. God determines who's right and wrong. And God determined what is right and wrong. God gets to make the rules because God made everything, including the moral universe in which we live. The same God who hung the stars, invented physics, invented gravity, didn't invent daylight savings time. Just want to point that out. Now, also designed the moral universe in which we live. So how do we best know what God tells us are good ways to live and not good ways to live. We know that, and this is assumption number three, is that the Bible is the best way to know God's will. And those of you that follow the asterisks, and I hope you do, the, the Bible read with the church. Not just, not just ourselves on our own, though that's a good starting point. I hope you are a person of the word. And not just only with a small group of like-minded people around us, though that is also good. I hope you're in a connection group. You're in a Bible study. I hope you got yourself a posse. Posses are amazing. Right. You want people you're doing life with, and that's good. But we also, if we want to have sound theology, we also read the Bible with people across geography So not just what does middle-class American you, middle-class American, middle-class white male me, how how do I understand Scripture? How, how How do my brothers and sisters in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, how do they interpret Scripture? We need other voices. We also need voices across time. Is this just an idea that we came up with in the last 30, 40, 50 years? I mean, what did they believe 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 2,000 years ago? What did the church fathers and mothers, what did they think? So we read the Bible in 
community. And the Bible read humbly and faithfully in community, we believe, is the best way to know God's will. It's not the only way that we know God's will. It's just the, just the best way because also we have our conscience. You know, the Holy Spirit guides you, guides me. But we lay all of those things, as important as they are, we lay all of those under the authority of Scripture. That God will never lead you in your heart to do something that in the Word of God says, don't do this. So, so level three, the Bible is the best way to know God's will. And that's when we get to level four. And this entire, or the fourth story of the four-story building, you can think of it that way. We get to the fourth story of the four-story building um, where we ask the question, so what is God's will about? And throughout the series, we're looking at different things. Last week, we looked at what does God say about um, sanctity of life. Uh, next week, we're going to look at conspiracy theories. God's will about conspiracy That'll be interesting, I promise you. Um, racial righteousness. So we're going to have conversations about hard things. Um, now, the other part that's important is to remember this is a conversation. I don't necessarily expect you to agree with me. It's okay if you don't. My job is to lay out a biblical foundation as best I am able. And then we talk about it together. So like uh, last Monday night on the, the conference room over there, we had a really great discussion group where people get to share different ideas and opinions and we look at the, at the scriptures together. We talk about the biblical principles together. This is a conversation. Sunday morning is a monologue. Monday night is a conversation. And that's, and that's important. Because, see, on, on this, this is a, this is a fourth-story uh, topic on human sexuality. I'm going to assume that we're not all of us on exactly the same page. <laughs> this is one of the most controversial topics in Christian theology right now. Okay? And, and so um, I'm going to tell you where, where the Covenant Church is and, and where I am as well. And we're going to walk through that. And for some of you, you won't necessarily be in that place. And I want to remind one another, and this is especially as we come into that conversation, is that there's, there are Christians who would affirm all, all three levels, you know, like the God exists, God determines right and wrong, and the Bible is the best way, who just come to a different conclusion on, on the, some of these fourth story issues. And when that happens, we need to remember that um, even though we disagree, and the issue is actually very, very important, that if we are disagreeing, if we are, quote-unquote, fighting, remember that it is a family fight. And so as we, as we argue with one another, as we debate ideas back and forth, the, the purpose in a family fight is to correct and never to wound. You hear me? So we're going to have respectful biblical conversations. So, and, and because um, clarity is a form of kindness, let me just say as clearly as I can kind of where the Covenant Church stands and where, where I am on this issue, okay? So the, here's, the, here's the phrase that summarizes the Covenant Church's ethic 
on human sexuality is that intercourse is, is appropriate only in faithfulness. Let's put that up on the screen. Faithfulness in heterosexual marriage. Or the full phrase, faithfulness in heterosexual marriage, celibacy in singleness, these constitute the Christian standard. Faithfulness in heterosexual marriage, celibacy in singleness, these constitute the Christian standard. Now, here's where that idea comes from, okay? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, this is one of those kind of foundational verses. So this is after... Adam and Eve have been, have been created, and it and includes this line. And by the way, this is, this is a line that is repeated by our Savior Jesus. So for those who would say Jesus never said anything about same-sex marriage, he didn't actually need to because, what he, because he, he tells us kind of what the foundational biblical definition of marriage is, and it's this. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So sexual intercourse is designed by God, yay, for pleasure, for procreation, and for marital connection. And it is intended to be exclusively within, experienced within the boundaries of one man and one woman in a lifetime commitment. So that, that's what, throughout the rest of this message, I'll be calling the, the quote-unquote traditional view of marriage. This, this is the, the, the definition of marriage that the, the church across its history has fundamentally held to. One man, one woman, in a lifetime commitment. Now, it's also important to remind ourselves that um, even before God invented uh, you know, intercourse and marriage, that there is an even more foundational identity. See, before Genesis chapter 2 comes Genesis chapter... See, I knew you were theologians. You got this. You got this. This is good. Okay, Genesis chapter 1 tells us this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this reminds us that, see, our sexual desires, even if you want to call it our sexual orientation, that is not the foundation of our identity. Our being made in the image of God is our most foundational identity. You and I, we are Image bearers, image bearers. Poke your neighbor and say, image bearer. Like, what does that mean? It means that there is a reflection of who God is in them. That is the uniquely human characteristic. All creation is good. God loves all the animals, even the mosquitoes. Don't know why. But humanity is uniquely designed, uniquely created in the image of God. We are image bearers. We are image bearers. 
Now, uh, we're going to take a, a quick look at some of the Bible passages about same-sex intercourse. Give a, Actually, just a quick overview. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on them today, in part because um, this is not the first time I've spoken on this. And, and so if you want to go into depth on some of those pieces, one, you could join Monday night and ask any questions you want to ask. It is going to be a, an open and emotionally safe forum, and we can debate, we can talk, we can unpack, we can do all of those things. It is okay. It is okay. Um, and some because we've already taught on these things. And so you can check if you want to know what I, what, at least what I think, or at least what I thought at the time with the, with the best of my ability, you can, you can go into the sermon archive. But here's, here's, a, here's a quick overview of some of the passages. And there's, there's only a few passages that specifically talk about homosexuality and homosexual expression in the Bible. It starts in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and we see this also in Leviticus 20, 13. Summary is this. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. So... Same-sex intercourse is prohibited, okay? Then we find it again in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 28. The kind of central ideas there is that, is that uh, as people uh, chose idolatry, that they exchanged natural sex, sexual relations for unnatural ones. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, talks about how men who have sex with men, among other sins that are listed that they will not enter the kingdom of God. And then it says, and that is what some of you were. So we're reminded that Corinth, as, as Paul is writing to the city, uh, Corinth is kind of like Las Vegas. Um, there, it, was, it was a very much an anything goes sort of culture, and Christians were trying to navigate their way um, through it and honestly out of it. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, talks about for the sexual immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, for liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So there are no positive examples of same-sex intercourse in the Bible. Not a one. Um, and, and that's why we kind of come back to our foundational, foundational sort of summary phrase that's the idea that faithfulness in heterosexual marriage and celibacy in singleness, these constitute the Christian standard. Both faithfulness in heterosexual marriage and celibacy in singleness are good and right ways to live. Both of them are good and faithful. Now, um, as we're coming into a, as we're in a message about um, human sexuality, my hunch is, uh, well, this is the point in the sermon where, uh, if I haven't disappointed you already, I'm about to disappoint you even more, because all of us come in with, with sort of different angles on what's most pressing in our life right now. So for some, that you're, you're, you're coming in with the angle of a parent, a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle, and you're thinking about things like, okay, for my kids, for my grandkids... They are trying to navigate a culture that has been changing so rapidly. What do I do? Trying to figure out what to do with the public school system, among other things. For some of you, your angle is you are a teacher in the public school system. And you're trying to just figure out, like, how do I, how do, I do this? Where the cultural values around us are, are changing. 
For some, you're wrestling with some of the associated issues around human sexuality that haven't even addressed, you know, the transgenderism. And, and maybe you've got loved ones that are wrestling with, with, with what's called gender dysphoria, where, where they feel like they're in the wrong body. And unfortunately, I'm not going to address those things today. Um, or maybe you're wrestling with some of the transgenderism issues around... Um, around things like athletics and what's fair and right and locker rooms. There's a lot of pressures. There's an awful lot of pressures. Uh, that, again, that's why we need things like discussion forums. So bring your questions. We're going to create safe spaces. It is okay to talk about these things in church. It is okay. It is good. And we can do so respectfully and we can do so biblically. Um, but for the remaining few minutes I've got today, here's where I wanted to go. Um, because this is an issue that I do believe affects all of us. So for you, it may, not feel, it may or may not feel like the most pressing question. Here's the one that haunts me. Where is the gospel for Thomas? Where's the good news? What does good news look like for a young man who's just honestly struggling? What does it look like? Now, one of the cultural assumptions that we live in is the idea that for your life to be fulfilled, part of your life being fulfilled is that your sexual desires will also be fulfilled. That's a general assumption that is being made in culture. And if that assumption is 100% true, then there actually is not very much hope for Thomas. Especially if Thomas finds himself in a church that affirms what, we call, what we're going to call a traditional view of marriage. There's not much hope for him. But here's the thing. Now, if our culture is right about that assumption, there is no good news. But the scriptures point us to something else. See, the scriptures tell us that our greatest fulfillment in life is actually found by knowing God and knowing and living in his will for us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Delight yourself in the Lord, the Psalms tell us. And as you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. Feel like you're seeing that around us now? Jesus says, I have come. I've come that they may have life. And have it in abundance. So in other words, our, our life's fulfillment, our, our heart's deepest happiness is not found by having all of our desires met. But it's having our desires molded and shaped by God. Having our lives surrendered to Him. And knowing and experiencing 
his will for us. So as we look at what that can mean for those who experience same-sex attraction, this is also the point where, where I, I'm going to, to a certain I'm just going to introduce you to some people, okay? And I'm going to introduce you to some resources because um, my words in this moment do not have the level of weight that they need to carry because there is a, an authenticity of faith and a depth of understanding that only comes from struggle and hardship. Now, all of the, all of the resources I'm going to be talking about, including all the passages, everything that are there, you can find those on our, on our website if you want. So, uh, columbiagrove.org, message notes. So, there's links. There's like going to be gobs and gobs and gobs of links to different organizations, to different videos, to different things, okay? Gobs and gobs and gobs of links. You don't even need to write down message notes in our website. There's a search bar. Just put in message. You will find it. We'll also have all of these things um, with the discussion group tomorrow night. And most of the resources I'm about, all, at least all the print resources I'm going to be talking about in the next few minutes, they're on the table in the back. And you can just take them. You can just take them home. Because I want to introduce you to a few people. There's some positive examples that I think can be really good guides for us in, as, we, as we look for so what, what are life-giving, healthy ways to move forward for those who are honestly struggling with same-sex attraction. So we, we actually need to turn to some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have or are experiencing same-sex attraction and are choosing to live within the quote-unquote traditional view of marriage and finding abundant life there. So, like for example, if you went onto, onto cubchurch.org and you looked under the equip page, you'd find people like Wesley Hill. Let's put this picture up. Now, Wesley is the associate professor of biblical studies at Trinity School of Ministry. He's also the, the author of the book, Washed and Waiting, so this is a, is a screenshot from a, um, a, a webinar that is about celibacy and vocational singleness. And in it, there was a quote I thought was really, really, really insightful. Check this out. This is Wesley Hill speaking. I realized that even if God was calling me to live without sex, he was not calling me to live without love. I hope you'll listen to that or other videos because you also get a, a sense of his struggle over the years. And he, and he said something else that was, uh, it, it talked about I thought was really, really insightful. And it's super important that we remember this. Can I see your eyes for a sec? Let me see your eyes. We serve a Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived a complete and perfect human life. And he was single and celibate. So before we ever look down on people who are single in the church, we get so focused on the family that we forget that not everybody is going to have a traditional nuclear family. And we far too often overlook those who are single. In, in fact, the Apostle Paul would write 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, because 
Paul, at this point in his ministry, possibly throughout his whole life, was single. And he says, says to the Corinthians in sex-starved Corinth, he says, I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has their, your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. It's an important reminder. Singleness can be a gift. Yes. If you are single and walking with Jesus, you are absolutely complete. Can I get an amen? amen. You are absolutely complete. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that there are a few advantages that come along with being single. That you can dedicate yourself in even greater ways to the Lord's work, to ministry. Singleness can be a gift. And so um, Wesley Hill writes about his journey into vocational singleness and with his decision to live as a single, a celibate single, comes a very deliberate commitment to intentional friendship. So he's written some books on, on intentional friendship, on what's called celibate partnerships. That might be a new category for us. But if people who choose to do life together, whether two people or, or, or larger groups of friends that choose to do life together, as they are trusting that, that God's deep wisdom about sexuality is the right way for them to live. Hmm? So we also meet people like, like Peter Volk. Now, Peter is the founder of the organization Equip Your Community which is actually, an let's put this picture up, um, is an intentional um, monastic community called Band of Brothers. It is an Anglican monastic community. Wow, never heard of that. They're out there. And, he, and he, so, so he talks about, about that and what it means to live in intentional community with an intentional friendship. And then he also... Again, we're gonna. This may be a new category, which is why I think it's helpful for us to whoop, start to expand our vocabulary a little bit. It starts to talk about what's called a mixed orientation marriage. What's that? That means where one or even both spouses in a marriage actually has a is um, is same sex attracted. So a man and a woman in marriage together but one or both would self-identify as being same-sex attracted. Now, our culture would tell us that can't work. And maybe that's what some of you are thinking in your mind. Here's, here's a quote that may help to shift how we think about these kinds of things. So, here's what he says in, uh, in his webinar. Okay. If marriage is primarily about sexual attraction and romantic companionship, then perhaps mixed orientation marriages won't work. But if marriage is really about emotional intimacy, vulnerability, 
commitment, raising children together, and displaying the gospel, if that is what Christian marriage is, then I see no reason why mixed orientation marriage can't be just as truly Christian. If you're wondering what that could look like, because of course that might seem like a strange thing, you could check out one of the next webinars, which uh, features people like Sarah and Nate Collins, who are in a mixed orientation marriage. Now, Nate uh, is PhD. He's the instructor of New Testament interpretation at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also one of the founding members of an organization called Revoice that is looking to, uh, to equip churches to better support people who support people who affirm that traditional view of marriage and are part of churches that are affirming a traditional view of marriage. How can those kinds of churches better support those who are same-sex attracted? And uh, I didn't actually have a particular quote from them other than I just thought they were super cute. Um, when, when, when you, you, because because so they've been married at this point, the point in, in this video, for 13 years. And they've got three kids together. And as they talk about their life and what they've learned, um, it just sounds really familiar. <laughs> now, the only reason, and now one of the things they say, this is not for everyone, but one of the things that I think is helpful for us is to start to wrap our mind around is, see, even these three examples of people that have experienced same-sex attraction are looking to trust what, as best we can tell, is God's word about human sexuality, is that they're finding abundant life in the midst of that. And that starts to break little tiny holes in that cultural lie that says, if you want your life to be fulfilled, then your sexual desires have to be fulfilled. Breaks pop some little holes in that lie, that cultural lie, starts to let some light in. I also would like to commend to you another resource. It's in the back. It's called Guiding Families. It's, this is the single best book I have found for, because like, it's a super easy read. It's by an organization called Posture Shift that um, for, for those, of, those of us who have friends or family members who are struggling with same-sex attraction, maybe even struggling with gender dysphoria. It's like a how-to book. Like, here are how to have winsome conversations. Here's the things to focus on. There's copies out in the, in the lobby. Please take one. If you order them from Amazon, they're about 35 bucks a piece. We got some in bulk. Um, we'd ask you maybe help us, if you can, to offset some of those costs. But we want you to have them. So that the next time you're in a conversation like I was in 30 years ago with Thomas, you'll have a better lay of the land. Because see, what we're trying to do, what we're trying to do as a church together, this is, you know, we're trying to have hard conversations, we're trying to make it okay to have hard conversations, is we're trying to be people who are embodying both grace and truth without compromising either. We're all about grace 
and we are all about truth. And you don't have to pick one over the other. Jesus' way forward is for both, is for both to be fully expressed. So we hold tight to the truths of Scripture as best we can understand them. And we live graciously with one another in our brokenness. And we've all got brokenness. We're all a mess.